Uh, my apologies. I did forget one thing. Uh, in the, sorry, uh, Sunday school classes can go out with Jess, please. I did forget. Uh, we got a note last night. Uh, we've been praying for Ted and Tiziana Gordillo. Uh, she has uh, some very long-term health issues, and I can't remember exactly what they were, but the note from them just said that uh, last evening, I believe it was, she had some very, very intense headaches, and after a couple of days of trying to deal with them, the, her husband, Ted, just said enough is enough and took her to the hospital to try and figure out what's going on. Uh, they were here in Australia for a number of years, about 10 years, serving with crew, and then they went back to America because of the climate here didn't work well with whatever uh, her long-term health issues are. So please remember her in prayer as well. I invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Acts 20, and we're going to read from 1, verse 1 to verse 16. I invite you to give attention to the words of the one living and true God in Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. And after the uproar had ceased... Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he determined to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. And these, but these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And we sailed from Philippi off the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. And on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a certain young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell on him, and after bracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for thus he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus in order that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. I understand that on the Wednesday night Bible study they were having some discussions about how Nelson would preach a sermon in which it was a long sermon and someone fell asleep and fell out of a window. And so I got to thinking about that. And I want you to know that my three sermon points this morning are not going to be, number one, the sorrow of sleeping through sermons. 
Number two, the pitfalls produced by prolonged preaching in verse 10. But the one that got me actually was in verses 11 and 12 where Paul leaves and they're comforted. So the preacher's parting produces great comfort. I'm not going to preach on those. But we will look at this text and there's some great things to learn here. Let's ask for God's blessing this morning before we proceed. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give thanks that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Father, we thank you that you are the God who is absolutely faithful to us. That when our strength does grow weary and we get tired in this walk, Father, we give thanks that you hold us fast and you draw us along. Father, you give us the strength, not for the whole race, but for the day. And Father, we ask you that you would teach us the things that we need to hear and see this morning from your word. And we ask you, Lord, for your blessing and for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, my apologies also about this evening. Uh, I've had the flu for most of the week, and I was up uh, coughing through part of the night, and I got up, and I thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it this morning. So I took a bottle of Robitussin and took a very large drink of Robitussin before I left, and Kathy said, oh, so this will be the long sermon in which the preacher falls asleep and not the people. Hopefully that won't happen either. But what is the Holy Spirit's message for us in our day and age from the text? We know that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So what is Acts 20 intended by God to teach or reprove or correct or train us in and encourage us in as well, I would add? There's two questions we can ask of every test we come across to help determine that answer. And question number one is, what is the text talking about? What's its main topic? What's its main subject that's contained in the lines of that text? And Acts 20 verses 1 to 16 is talking very much about Paul and his friends journeying from Ephesus to Miletus with a significant stop in Troas. And what's the text saying about Paul and his friends journeying? In verses 1 to 6, we see that Paul, Luke gives us sorry, a brief description of three months' worth of journeying from Ephesus to Troas. And then in verses 7 to 12, Although they're in Troas for only seven days, Luke gives a very detailed description of 10 to 12 hours gathered for worship together. And then in verses 13 and 16, Luke gives us a brief description of their journeying from Troas to Miletus. So I'm going to suggest that the account of Paul and his friends journeying from Ephesus to Miletus and his gathering with the disciples at Troas serves to illustrate and instruct us in two important truths about our Christian life. The Bible is full of pictures to illustrate our Christian life. You can go through the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in their pilgrimages in the book of Genesis. You can go through Israel's wilderness wanderings and Exodus to Numbers and see all the life lessons, the lessons for how we are to live this walk of faith before the Lord. We can go through Israel's conquest of Canaan and Joshua and bits of Judges. And we can see there's many examples all through Scripture given to us so we know how we are to live and walk this Christian life of faith. 
Christian life is a journey or a pilgrimage. Now, sadly, the word journey got really overused back in the 90s and early 2000s. And sort of something that kind of grinds on my nerve when I say the word journey. So I'm going to try and use the word pilgrimage. And you say, what's a pilgrimage? Pilgrimage is a spiritual religious journey. That's all it means. Uh, Some of you may have read the great book written by John Bunyan uh, called Pilgrim's Progress. He's talking about a man on a journey, and it's an allegory given to describe what this Christian life is like. If you haven't read it, I strongly encourage you, read it, and do it the hard way. Read it in the old King James-ish type English language, as beautiful as you read it. Find a copy. If you haven't got one, ask me and I'll get you one. We're all, like John Bunyan's famous character in Pilgrim's Progress, we're living this Christian life as if on a pilgrimage. We've all begun by entering through the narrow gate of repentance of sin and faith in God for salvation. That gets us on that narrow way. We've all been set free. Those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been set free from the burden of the guilt of our sin. We've been filled with God's Spirit. We've been equipped with God's Word. And we've been surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ with whom... We regularly, like today, pause to gather together for worship, encouragement, exhortation, teaching, and even sometimes rebuke. We're all on a spiritual journey through this life till our death or Christ returns. And so two main points this morning. Number one, the pilgrim's journeying in verses 1 to 6 and then 13 to 16. And secondly, the pilgrim's worship in verses 7 through 12. So first of all, the pilgrim's journeying. We're talking about the Christian's pilgrim life, living and walking the narrow way. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 14. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so my prayer this morning for all of us, for those who are already pilgrims, that we'll be encouraged and built up and pushed on in our journey with the Lord. And for those who are not yet pilgrims, who have not come to know Christ, that they will indeed find and enter the small gate and begin to walk the narrow way with us. Firstly, in verses 1 and 2, the pilgrim's journey requires godly exhortation. What happens? Paul, after the uproar has all ceased, Paul sends the disciples, he exhorts them, and then he leaves, and he travels through Macedonia, and he goes through all those districts, and everywhere he went, he gave them much exhortation. So what is exhortation? One of those great, uh, pardon me, Christian words we sometimes use without thinking what the meaning is. It means, first of all, there's a bunch of nuances I mean, we'll look at a couple of them. It means, first of all, to urge someone to do something. I used to explain it this way. Clean your room or else judgment will fall. Cleaning the room is an exhortation to my three sons to go and clean their rooms because if they don't, their mother's wrath will fall on them and not even I will be able to save them. So that's an exhortation. It's to urge someone. Luke 3 verse 8, John exhorted his Jewish hearers saying, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In Acts 2, verse 40, Peter, at the close of his Pentecost sermon, kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. They urge their listeners to action based on their message. It means to comfort and console. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. It's the same root word. It's comforting. It means to encourage. In Ephesians 6, 22, Paul sent Tychicus to them to encourage their hearts. It's the same root word. Poovin, I think my mic just, or something happened. I lost all of, maybe my hearing's going too. Who knows? Can, can you hear me okay? Oh, okay. Oh, I get it. It's too loud, and you turn the mic off. I got you. Good on you. Well done. Okay, as long as you can hear me, that's all. It doesn't matter. Okay, so faithful word ministry includes exhortation. In uh, in First Timothy four thirteen, Paul told Timothy, "Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching." So exhortation is urging and comforting each other to help us do what we need to do to stay on this narrow way that leads to life. Listen to what scriptures say, brothers and sisters. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 11, You know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his children. Exhortation comes from a heart of love for the other to grow in their love for the Lord. In Hebrews 3.13, the writer says, But encourage or exhort one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhorting is used by God to encourage one another, to prevent each other's hearts becoming hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, the writer says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging, or the word is exhorting one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Exhorting is encouraging each other to greater love, to greater good deeds, to gathering together, especially as we see the day of Christ's return coming closer. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we all need this. Sometimes we need that fatherly rebuke. Uh, Lee Dipros, who's coming in October to share a couple of Sundays when Heather and I are, are away in England, uh, he is a godly older brother that God brought into my life as the, I started working here. Every once in a while, I'm having a moment where I just need someone to reach over and give me one of those Denozo head slaps upside the back of the head to smarten up. And my phone rings, and it's Lee Dipros. It's amazing how God works to put that older brother's voice in my ear to just gently exhort me, don't do that. Stop, start doing this. You need to think about this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're all there. We all need that exhortation in our lives. It's God's gift to us as part of the body of Christ that we come alongside each other and a word that says, smarten up, a word that says, keep going. God has given you all that you need to finish this race with him. Don't give up. Don't turn back. Come on, let's walk together. It's one of the blessings of this Christian life. So my exhortation for us all for this coming week is what the writer of Hebrews says, consider your brothers and sisters this week to see how you may exhort them. Don't just stand back and wait for someone to come and exhort you. Pick up your phone. Send a text message. Send an email. 
Call, go by their house and say, hey, I just want to encourage you to keep going in your walk with the Lord. Don't give up. Even the way gets hard. Don't give up. Not only that, we need exhortation to stay on the narrow way because of the opposition that we face. So we see the pilgrim's journey includes opposition in 20 and verse 3. There he, Paul, spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, who's about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. A plot was formed against him by the Jews. How many times have we read about that in the book of Acts? It's happened over and over again. And this pilgrim pathway that we're all on includes opposition and persecution and suffering. We've seen it repeatedly. We've seen it in our own lives in varying degrees. No, none of us have ever been taken out of the city and stoned and left for dead. No, we haven't been beaten with rods five times. No, we haven't had all those terrible things that Paul did. But we all face opposition and hindrance and persecution and suffering as we walk this pilgrim way. There was a t-shirt you used to get uh, back when I was a teenager, so that's scratched a long time ago. But it had a picture of all these fish, and they're all swimming in one direction, and there are all kinds of you know, sharks and, and piranhas and stuff. And right in the middle, there was that Christian symbol of the fish, you know, the two half circles overlapping each other. And he was swimming the other way. And it was a beautiful picture about what the Christian life is like. We're not going with the flow. We're going against it, aren't we? And going against the flow, walking with Christ, against what the world says, walking that narrow way, while they're all going the broad way that leads to destruction, we are going to encounter opposition and suffering and persecution. But be encouraged. God has purposes in the oppositions and persecution and suffering of our journey along the narrow way. God's purposes in allowing opposition include testing and strengthening our faith in him. We see that in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's lives and pilgrimages. His purpose include teaching us the progress in the pilgrimage is by God's grace and power alone. Not our own strength or ability or ingenuity. God's power is at work in us every single day to take us the next day forward, take the next step and the next one and the one after that. We wouldn't survive one second in this Christian life and journey if it were not for God's power at work toward us to carry us through. And opposition reminds us of that repeatedly. God brings opposition to teach us to find in him, in Christ alone, our only source of joy and satisfaction. In your presence, the psalm writer wrote, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The problem is we live in a world that's so full of pleasures and trinkets and toys that we keep wanting to sort of look over our shoulder. Things are going by. We're on the narrow road going forward, but there's so many distractions that try to pull us away. And the suffering that we encounter reminds us that we find our joy and our satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. Remember what the scriptures say. In 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter writes and says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith 
being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James also says in James 1, 2, and 3, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. Brothers and sisters, this pilgrim pathway that he was on and that we're on includes opposition. And we need exhortation, brothers and sisters, coming alongside and sharing Scripture with us to keep us going. And in order to receive that exhortation to, oppos- to endure opposition, we need fellowship. Notice, thirdly, the pilgrim's journey requires Christian fellowship. Look what it says in verse 4. It says, He, Paul, was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and, by- and Secundus, of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. They were men that Paul was pouring his life into, teaching them, training them, encouraging them. They're useful to him for ministry. And we know that from his pastoral letters written to Timothy and Titus, he had the fellowship of these likely younger men with him on his journey. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we all need the fellowship of other believers in our journey on the narrow way of this Christian life. Yes, we need it in terms of a local church, but you know what? We also need it in terms of smaller groups. What Poovin was saying earlier in his announcements about the Bible studies, the need to be together outside of church times, to be around the Word of God in each other's lives, feeding and encouraging one another. We need it in terms of small groups as well as the whole church. So what is fellowship? What does that mean? It comes, as many of you will know, from the Greek word kinonia, and it means communion, close relationship, participation. It's sharing something in common with each other. So fellowship in the Christian life and pilgrimage is, are those special relationships that we can have with those with whom we have the one most important thing in common. And you know what that is, don't you? It's Christ. It's Jesus. Over the last several months, you, you forgive the personal uh, illustration, over the last several months I've been meeting regularly with about six different men to study, to pray, to encourage, to share Christ as we journey together. Two of them are younger than me, two are my own age, and two are older than me. I didn't plan it that way, it just happened to be the way it worked out. But my main purpose is to help us together to stay on the narrow way, to keep walking with the Lord. And the remarkable thing is, except for a couple of rare occasions... I always come away from those catch-ups more encouraged than when I arrived. It's amazing. You get together with someone and your goal is, I'm going to encourage them. You know what happens? You get encouraged. Happens over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, every single one of us, elders and deacons, members and attendees, men, women, young or older, we all need fellowship with other like-minded believers for encouraging, for rebuking, for admonition, for support, for company along the way. Early in the Pilgrim's Progress, Christians joined by another believer, and as they walk together, they share back and forth in what it means to walk with the Lord and love the Lord and serve the Lord, and they're ministering to each other as they go along. That's the great joy of this Christian life. Nobody was called to this Christian life to walk a solo journey. 
It's not. We're called to be together in each other's lives, walking alongside of each other. Yes, there's necessary times of brief solitude. We're going to look at that just in a moment. By the way, I'll just add my amen to what Poovin said earlier. A great place to find fellowship in the context of a local church is small group Bible studies. Tuesday evening, Wednesday evening, Friday morning, fearful men, the three lady studies. If there's no study that fits your schedule, come talk to me. If I can't find one, I'll meet with you and study together, whether it's on Zoom or it's in person, whatever it is. It's important. And, so, and you know what? The, the wonderful thing is it's such a blessing to everybody who is involved. It isn't just a blessing for the young people. It's a blessing for everybody because we build each other up. Do we always agree? No. Do we sometimes discuss the issues <laughs> sure we discuss things sometimes and some of those discussions get a little heated but you know what's cool about that when you take a file and metal and you begin to file on metal and you work away at that file if you've done any metal working or a wood rust you've done woodworking you'll notice after a little while you touch the file it gets warm doesn't it but that warmth that working against each other actually works to shape and form each other more into the image of Christ. And that's what it's all about. Ministering, not just to know theology, not just to know scripture, not just to be able to say, hey, I've, I did biblical counseling with this guy today, and, and I'm so cool because I did that. No, that's not the point at all. The point is for God to use each of us in the other person's life. Oh, you think, wait a minute, you know, I'm not really mature in my walk. I, I couldn't be any use. Oh, don't. No, that's not how it works either. Because God uses you wherever you are. And I've had some interesting moments where younger men in the faith of me have come alongside and said, do you ever think about this? Boom, 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 boom. And I'm going, yeah, it's not that. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe it is. And gone back and looked and discovered that he was right and I was wrong. God works that way. But brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Paul traveled with all those men on that journey of faith, and I'm not kidding, I, no, no doubt, sorry, that as they walked together, they talked about the scriptures, and Paul shared with them, and they talked back, and they learned what it was to be a servant of the Lord as they traveled with Paul, and he learned something of the faith from them. I'm not, I have no doubt about that. Moving on. Remember what the scriptures say about fellowship. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership, what right with... Try again. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, beware of the friendships that you maintain outside the faith. Uh, years ago, when I wasn't walking the Lord, I was in a youth group, and one of my, my friends, I was, was a roommate with me, actually, um, he did a little illustration for the whole youth group to observe and learn from at my expense, God bless him. Uh, he had me stand on a chair, and I weighed considerably more than he does, and I was a carpenter, he was an IT tech, he didn't have much upper body strength, and he said, I'll tell you what, you pull me up or I'll pull you down, we'll see who wins. And so I stood on the chair and tried to pull him up with, by his arm, and he stood on the floor and tried to pull me off. Who won? He did, right? Because it's so much easier to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up. Brothers and sisters in Christ, watch out. Beware the friendships you maintain with those outside the faith. 
without realizing that some of them will draw you away. I would even go so far as to beware of the friendships you maintain inside the faith too. There are times when we get involved in relationships with men who are not walking with the Lord. Women are not walking with the Lord and they can drag us away unless we are very careful and very wise. Yes, we need to be in those relationships, but be careful. Come in there with scripture, armed with prayer, equipped with the word of God to encourage and draw them back to the faith. But beware also the ones outside the faith. Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 and 10 say, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. Two walking and fellowshipping together have help each other in their labor for the Lord. And they pick each other up. I'm so grateful for a relationship I have with Rod over at Village Church. You know why? Because there are times when we just come alongside each other and we'll share what's going on in our hearts, our lives, even our families, and we'll pick each other up and help each other along the way a little further. Malachi 3 verse 16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. That's the verse we use for fearful men. Believers Fearing the Lord, speaking, encouraging, building one another up is exactly what fellowship is. Moving on. Fourthly, the pilgrim's journey requires godly solitude. If you notice in verses 13 and 14, uh, Luke writes, We going ahead to the ship set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board, and so on. Paul sent them all on ahead, the we, meaning Luke and those other seven men. But Paul himself went alone overland to meet them at Assos. We're not given much detail about what happened and why. We just know that he sent them on the boat and he walked his way around. So I'm going to use that to make a point. Not only do we need desperately fellowship with believers in this Christian life, but we also desperately need solitude, our own time before the Lord. Every great man and woman of God whose biography I've read have all been men and women of prayer and devotion to the Lord in solitude. We know Paul took time to be alone with the Lord in prayer. If Paul needed it, we certainly need it. Jesus himself took time to be alone with his Father for prayer. If even Jesus needed it, then surely you and I need that time alone in solitude with the Lord in prayer and meditation. And just plain silence. Brothers and sisters, there's a call on us. And I would argue that the, where you are in your Christian walk is directly proportionate to where you are in your time alone with the Lord. How much time you're spending with Him on your knees, with the Word of God open, reading to hear what He would say, and responding in prayer and faith and repentance and worship. I can always tell them all my own life when things all of a sudden are not going so well. Other things are bad, but all of a sudden I'm finding a struggle with everything. I look back and realize that I haven't been taking the time I need to to spend with the Lord one-on-one -on -one in solitude. There's a call in this Christian life. There's a desperate need in this Christian life for a godly solitude, time spent with the Lord. So this Christian pilgrimage, this journey in the life of faith includes the enemy's opposition. It requires godly exhortation. 
It requires godly fellowship and it demands seasons of solitude. And the second main point is this, the pilgrims worship in verses 7 to 12. From three months' travel, explained in six brief verses, to one long overnight, 10 to 12-hour worship service. This is Luke's focus in the whole section. One of the ways you can tell is you read narrative sections of Scripture. Look at the pace. If you've got like a whole bunch of time covered very quickly, and then all of a sudden the writer slows down and gives you a lengthy discussion over a short amount of time, that's a focus he's making. And that's what Luke's doing here. Luke's focus in this section is that is describing the gathering of God's people for worship. Luke is also, very importantly, describing the Christian church's transition from a Jewish seventh Sabbath day's worship at the end of the week to the Christian gathering on the first day of the week that celebrates Jesus' resurrection. They gathered God's people together for worship. So, What is worship? I know we do that all the time, but let's just take a moment to stop and refresh our minds of what worship really is. The gathered worship is the corporate expression of our individual love for God. I love the Lord. Edward loves the Lord. Rosemary loves the Lord. Peter loves the Lord. We come together and we express that love as a corporate group as we join our voices in singing. When the guy at the front prays and he says at the end, in Jesus' name, and we all say, amen, we're all adding our amens to his prayer. We're joining with him in what he is saying. It's a corporate expression. He's leading the whole church in prayer. Worship is praying the word to God. It's singing the word to God and to each other. It's reading the word for God to each other. And it's preaching the word for God to each other as well. Worship includes all those expressions. But worship is not about eloquence or style or musical talent or oratory ability or sophisticated lights and smokes and choreography. Worship is about the heart of the people of God for God. If it was about those other things, what about the one who is mute and can't speak? Can he not worship? Of course he can. It's his heart. What about the one who is utterly tone deaf and can't sing to save his life? Sure he can. He makes a joyful noise to the Lord. We all wish he'd make it to himself, but that's okay. But worship is about our heart before God. It's not about eloquence. It's not about fancy speech. It's not about any of those things. It's about the heart of a man and a woman before God, lifting them up in joy and love for the Lord. That's what worship is. Yes, worship is about order and appropriateness. Our joy in God who saved us, justified us, and adopted us. It's our reverence for God. We come into this place fully mindful, and it's my job and my joy to remind us all of who it is we have gathered to worship. He's not our mate, our buddy. He's the living God. And so we come together with worship, with reverence and joy in the Lord. And the center and focus of our worship must always be our Lord Jesus Christ. The form of worship, the how we do it, must never become more important than the heart of love for God behind our worship. 
One of the reasons why it's so important for us as a people of God, on our own, before we come together, to take time to examine our hearts before the Lord, to see what sin has been allowed to grow there, to deal with it, to confess it, to forsake it, to seek forgiveness, that we might come together in a way that's not going to hinder one another's worship. You can always tell when somebody isn't right with the Lord, there's a bitter, angry spirit there. might not be much, but it's there. And that bitterness... That anger hinders other people's worship. We come together with a heart of love behind our worship. Worship's high point is Sunday corporate gathered worship. But worship is also about our whole lives lived in sacrificial service to God. The Sunday morning worship service is the outflow of the previous week's life lived in service for God. And it's preparation for the next week. How many here enjoyed a good time with the Lord this week? Some of you, most of you, good, few of you. How many looking forward to enjoying a good time with the Lord next week? I sure am. This worship service is the outflow. It's the expression of joy and thanksgiving to God. As Wes said, faith and thanksgiving go so tightly and so well together. We come together and we give thanks to the Lord for all the things that he has done for us, all the things he's taken us through, even the hard times we're still going through. That's worship. But it's a heart in love for the Lord. Back to the text. Notice what Luke says about their gathering for worship. Firstly, he talks about the priority of it. It was the first day of the week. It celebrates Christ's resurrection, the new life in Christ. The break from seventh-day Sabbath rest to first-day worship happened sometime in this period of time in the book of Acts. For these first-century Christians, many of whom were slaves and the poor, they worship came after a long day of laboring in fields and workshops and homes of the rich. They didn't have Sunday off, so their services were all in the evening. That's why it's nighttime. That's why the smoky lamps are lit. Eutychus had good reason to be sleepy besides the sleep-inducing smoky oil lamps making the heavy air heavy and difficult to breathe. He'd been working all day. He was sitting up on a, on a chair in a high spot, and the smoky air, I'm sure maybe Paul droned on a bit, who knows, but it made him sleepy. For us, on Sunday morning, the first day of our week, before we do anything else, we set aside time to come in worship and praise and thanksgiving to God, to receive our instructions and our equipping for the week ahead, to seek God's favor and blessing for our week ahead. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what is your highest priority in this week's events? Please. Don't make the tragic mistake of setting your priorities like this. After everything else is said and done, my first priority is church. No. Before anything else is said or done in your week, gather with God's people. Gather around God's Son to worship, to praise, and to exalt Him. I am fully aware that there are some that have to work Sundays. I understand that. I think the Lord understands that. But outside of that time, make that your highest priority, to be with God's people, to worship and to praise and to exalt Him. It was their first priority. Number two, it's the community of worship. They were gathered together. 
I mentioned fellowship before in ones and twos and small groups. It's a necessary, a priority, a benefit to all to gather together for worship as a community of believers. Why is that? Because each other's worship inspires and encourages and equips our own worship. I love to hear other men pray and read the word and preach messages. Hearing them fuels and fires my own desire to worship, to pray, and to preach. Listening to each other as we express our worship to God is a way of fueling each other, firing each other. The the Spirit of God uses others' worship to fuel and equip our own worship. But worship also serves to edify one another, to build one another up. That's why it's a necessity for and a blessing from gathered corporate worship. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need the gathering of God's people for worship. Church is not an optional accessory to our faith. It's absolutely vital to our faith. In Acts 2, I love the story, all those thousands get saved. At the end of the chapter, before the chapter closes, Luke records, and they persistently devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's a gathering for worship. As soon as they're saved, they're getting together. I don't know about you, but you spend enough time in the world, and then you get to spend some time with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's nothing so relieving so joyful as getting together with God's people to spend time in the Word, spend time in prayer, and time in worship. It's absolutely essential. Thirdly, there's edification or building up from worship. We see in verse 7 and verse 11, the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And when he'd gone back up in verse 11, after... Uh, falling on Eutychus and helping him up. He went up and he broke bread and talked with him a long while until daybreak and then left. Preaching, teaching, talking from God's word is worship. People occasionally say to me, oh, I really enjoyed the worship part of your service. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, the singing part. Okay, I'm glad you enjoyed the first half of the worship because the singing part is worship. And so is the preaching. It's worship. You say, how is that? Because as I'm speaking, or whoever's standing here is speaking and preaching the word, our own hearts ought to be lifting up to God in thanksgiving for what's being said, in repentance over what's being said, in, in worship over what's being said. Maybe you're like one of us here who when he hears something, starts to flip through scriptures back and forth, look and see what other verses say about what's just been said. It's fueling your mind to go searching to find the Lord. When preaching is done right and Christ is made much of, it is indeed worship. And Paul talked and preached and spoke with them all those hours to build them up and strengthen them in their faith. We're not told what he talked about. But I fully doubt he was discussing Roman politics or conspiracy theories or Greco-Roman footy games. If we take Paul's speech and acts... And the content of Paul's epistles, it's highly likely he spoke of Christ and him crucified. But it wasn't simply the gospel. It was how that gospel reality applies to all of life. It applies to our individual salvation and sanctification. No doubt he spoke about that. It applies to our ministries inside and outside the church. No doubt he spoke about that. 
It applies to our homes, our marriages, our families, our business relationships, masters and servants. You can go through the New Testament epistles and see all the things that Paul spoke about. And as he sat in that upper room with all those people for what was probably close to 10 or 12 hours reading and teaching and explaining and expounding scripture, he was taking the gospel and he was applying it to every part of their lives. That's what ministry is about. That's what worship is about. It's about seeing our whole lives transformed into worship for God in every area of our lives. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we all desperately need to sit under the ministry of the word. For the ministry of the word focuses our attention on Christ. Word ministry brings the gospel to bear on every aspect. And the ministry of the word in worship edifies and builds us up. Fourthly, almost done. Acts 20, verses 9 and 10 is revival in worship. We finally we get to sleepy Eutychus. And as I said earlier, Luke clearly identifies why he fell asleep. It had probably not much to do with Paul's preaching for hours on end. I hold fast to that as a preacher. It had lots to do with the long day's labor, the oil lamps, and the difficulty breathing. Eutychus fell down. He was taken up dead, but God raised Eutychus from death through Paul, falling on him and embracing him. It was God's miracle confirming Paul's ministry. And my question is, is there a point for us in that? I'm going to use the text as an illustration for a benefit of worship. And I want to say this. God uses our worship to stir up spiritually sleepy believers. Amen, <laughs> Amen indeed. God uses worship to stir up spiritually sleepy believers, not just through loudspeakers and a big voice. He does it by the work of the Holy Spirit working in amongst us and stirring us up. God uses our coming together. He uses the words of the prayers that are offered, the words of hymns and songs we sing. He uses the scriptures as we read them, the message as it's preached, the fellowship of believers before and after the service of worship to stir up, to shake and awake sleepy believers. To quote the old preacher's guideline, God uses worship and ministry to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That's what it's supposed to be. Brothers and sisters, listen. When you feel your walk with the Lord slowing to a crawl, we've all been there. When you feel your heart growing cold to the things of God, when you feel yourself being pulled away from the narrow road and back towards the broad road and you're starting to turn around, don't, for goodness sake, don't listen to the whispers of the devil. He'll seek to draw you away by suggesting, oh, this isn't the best time to be gathered. I mean, you're not really walking with the Lord. You know, you can always go next week. Anybody's heard that, right? You can always go next week. You know, you're really in no fit state to be with God's people, really. You should just hold off. Wait till things are all better between you and the Lord. No, 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 no. That is the time when we need to be with God's people more than any other. I heard a sermon illustration years ago. It might have been one of Spurgeon's. It might have been Spurgeon himself. I don't know, but I'll share it with you anyway. And knowing, I don't know where, where I heard it, but here's how it goes. Uh, an old preacher, a young preacher, goes to visit an old farmer who hadn't attended church for some time. 
Now, if the usual pleasantries, they're both sitting in front of the fire in one of those old, cold English homes, and the fire is glowing and burning brightly in the hearth. And they're staring at the fire. And as time went by, the preacher just reached over, took the tongs off the side of the little stand, you know, where the fire tools are. And he reached into the fire and took, a pair, took one of the coals out of the fire. And he lifted it out of the fire and he just set it down on the hearth. He put the tongs back and then they both began to stare at the coal between them. What happened? Time passed. The coal grew cold and it glowed less and less unless he came off it until it began to be gray and cold. And the preacher took the tongs and reached down and picked up the, the coal, and he put it back in the front of the fireplace where they could both watch it again. And in a few minutes later, it was glowing hot and bright all over again. I don't know if that story is true or not, but it sure makes the point, doesn't it? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we desperately need to be with God's people. They gathered together. They sat under the sound of the word, and sleepy Eutychus was revived. It, that's different. I get that. But the point I want to make is the same. If you're feeling like your walk is beginning to drift away from the Lord, you're feeling cold in your own heart before the Lord, that's the time to get together with God's people. And maybe we have to take that time to be brutally honest and say, I'm really struggling with my walk. One of my dear friends that I meet with, one of those six guys, Called me up not long ago and just said, I just want to say thanks for the, the chat this morning. Okay, cool. And he said, you don't know, I was just really feeling cold in my walk. I've really been struggling. There's some things I need to deal with and just spending some time with you and talking about it. I had no idea, not a clue. He didn't let on. And he just said, thank you because I went and spent some time with the Lord and things are much better. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in this race together. It's not a solo race. It's a marathon as a group together running the race for the Lord. Last point I want to make this morning, the best and the greatest point of all about worship is the pilgrim's journey and worship involves remembrance. We are reminded of Christ's person. They came together in order to break bread, which we're going to do in just a moment. It's another name for the Lord's Supper. And of all the things we do in worship service, the Lord's Supper is the one part that focuses solely on Christ. When we sing, we minister to each other. When we pray, we minister to God's heart and we minister to each other. When we preach the word of God, we minister to each other. But when we stop... And take that little piece of bread and a little cup of juice and we remember the Lord. Our thoughts should be focused entirely upon him. Everything about ourselves is pushed away and pushed aside and we just remember Christ. It's to remember him, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's to please him through undivided focus on him. It's to please the Lord by reflecting Christ's glory back to the Father's heart. We portray the gospel in what we do. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we portray the gospel eating the bread that speaks of his body given for us by drinking the wine or the juice that speaks of his blood shed for us. We're reminded of Christ's person and work and glory. And as we prepare in a moment to take the, the elements, consider, just push everything else aside for a moment. He is the only unique son of God, truly man and truly God. 
He is the great prophet of God who spoke God's word to us. He is the great priest, the great high priest who offered himself as our once for all sacrifice to cleanse us from sin. And we partake of that as those who have been washed in the blood of Christ. He is the great king, once crowned with thorns, now crowned with glory. He is the great shepherd of the sheep who laid down his life for the sheep. No man took it from him. He laid it down of himself and he took it up again of himself. He's our great judge. He is coming again to gather his elect and condemn the unrepentant and unbelieving. As we take that little cup of juice, that little piece of bread, and we eat of it and we drink of it, we're reminded in a physical, tangible way. But it isn't just the physicality of it. It's our minds. It's our hearts focused on Christ. It's our hearts. As, as you take that little piece of bread and a little cup of juice, don't let your mind wander. Maybe you recognize the words of the hymn that Edward's playing. Use them to focus your worship. But focus on Christ. Remember him. It's not about just eating and drinking. It's about reminding. It's about thinking and bringing to mind again all that Christ has done for us. We're reminded of the great cost of our salvation. Jesus suffering on the cross under God's wrath. Jesus' death on the cross by which our sin was atoned for and our offenses were dealt with. It's Jesus' resurrection from the grave for our justification and his soon return in power and great glory. Listen, we're on this journey until one of two things happens. We die and we're in God's presence immediately. Or Christ returns. I don't know about you, but I'm hoping for his return. Amen. Hoping it'll be soon. Before I finish this sermon. But that's it, isn't it? It's a journey. Paul stated back in Acts 19 and verse 21, he'd goal of getting to Jerusalem. We have a goal on this journey of seeing the Lord. But the journey isn't just about getting there. It's about the journey between here and there by which we are steadily being transformed and changed into Christ's image. And the greatest way that we're changing to his image is by focusing on him. That's why we remember the Lord. I'll share this and, and please don't, misunderstand. I grew up in a tradition where we did this every Sunday. It's one of the few things I miss about the Brethren Church where I grew up, is taking communion every Sunday morning and remembering the Lord every Sunday as part of our worship. You know why? Because that time is just focused on Christ. We push everything else away and we see Jesus. That's our call. That's my call to you this morning. For the next few minutes to push everything else away and just see Jesus. What I'm going to do, I'm going to just give you some time to stop, to think, to reflect on what we've talked about, to think about Christ, and then I'm going to give thanks for the bread and the guys will come forward and distribute it. So just take some, a few moments.